0: Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, A Journey to Quantify Crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions brought in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens, or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In today's episode, I'm joined by Chris Thomas, Head of Digital Assets at Swiss Coit Bank. Chris, it's great to have you on. Josh, pleasure
1: to speak to you again.
0: So Chris, you've had uh, quite a, a story, an interesting career. You've moved around, you know, I'm, I'm skipping a lot here, but from UBS to BNP to, to Fidelity, where you worked on innovation and so much more. Can you give us a bit of background on your life before crypto and and the entrepreneurial endeavors that you had?
1: With pleasure. And uh, it certainly gets a lot more interesting. So to give give you a brief breakdown, the first 10 years of my career were fixed income and FX, sales and trading. uh, Most of the sort of some of the European investment banks. The last 10 years, more recent 10 years of my career have been entrepreneurship and innovation. Really pulling all these things together, but there's also often a lot of in banking and um, interest rates type ideas in my head. Um, in terms of the first ten years, I really had a love hate relationship with investment banking. I think the size of the banks was uh, quite a challenge for me. The the speed that they operated, I just didn't enjoy. But I really loved the financial markets. I really loved the the risks the seeking opportunities, whether it's an arbitrage or whether it's a how can I make money today, tomorrow, six months, a year in advance. So in a nutshell, the first, so 10, 10, 10 and 10, moving forward. Um, after I made my exit from the investment banking year um, environment, I built a business. And um, to, so the end of 2008, um, early 2009, I started a condoms business, Now I know a lot of people go, wow, condoms, wow, scary. Um, You were, you, you were trying to
0: protect yourself during the financial crisis.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's a hedge, right? Everyone needs them. You need, <laughs> and let's not go too too far into that. But yeah, um, it was a great opportunity for me to gain a passive income at the same time, um, whilst continuing. I actually moved to Switzerland, and I was still in the the fixed income FX space at that time. Um, but essentially, it was building a B two C business largely through Amazon. Um, but I mean, through those two years working abroad. With um, the base being still being in Scotland and my father running it, we were able to expand it quite well. And, and then at that point, I decided, hey, actually, I want to make an exit from um, the world of financial markets and go fully into embrace um, innovation and entrepreneurship. And so I really focused on building that business, um, scaled it quite significantly to get my investment banking salary back quite quickly. And everything was looking good. And then along came uh, Mr. Jurex, the big bad um, European um, sort of farm, farm and healthcare brand, um, who liked to take their monopolistic approach in these markets, and uh, saw people like ourselves operating in these markets who were able to undercut the your general drugstores and corner shops and deliver online, really discreet next day delivery for. Substantial margin, but undercutting these other guys substantially as well. Durex hated that and went out to kill people like us. So, in a long story short, they what they did was they first cut off supply for European competitors or people operating like us across Europe. Uh, we were at the time we were hundred percent focused on the UK. So, what I got to, I first thing I did was I spoke to my virtual assistants and said, "Hey, I want you to contact." All of these guys across Europe and say, hey, we can supply you with these condoms because you can't get them in Europe. And hey, your business is about to die. Go from 100% revenues down to zero instantly. So within a week, we had a six figure business, uh, revenue business, um, pro forma invoices. Everyone was paying us upfront cash into our bank accounts. Um, and we were able to turn around huge quantities of condoms getting delivered to my father's house. That was a delightful experience <laughs> a of condoms coming to my father's house. The one meter by one meter stacks of brown boxes with Durex written all over them. Um, they would land on his driveway of his house. He would take the labels off, put new shipping labels on, and we would easily, quick transaction, ship them across Europe, doubling our money. Super easy business. And then Jurex came back and said, hey, these guys in Europe are still getting condoms. How do we stop this? And they worked out that they had to stop it um, by cutting off the, U- the UK sources too. Um, so at that point, we got a heads up of uh, from one of our top suppliers um, of a day or so. So we had really had a decision. And that big decision at that point, given my experience taking risks, seeing opportunities, from my trading and my, yeah, just the excitement and fun of um, doing crazy stuff. Um, I basically, I closed, I took every single penny from our business bank account and hit the full credit limit on both my personal credit cards. And we bought a hell of a lot of condoms, 650,000 Durex condoms with a three-year expiry date. And we warehoused them. And, and give, 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 to give you a clue, that's two full shipping containers full to the top of Jurex condoms with an expiry, as I say, of three years. We had to then get rid of them. So the strategy was, do we go down the B2B model and send them across Europe um, and get rid of them in one or two months and make, you know, quite a lot of mo- uh, money and then finish up, move on to the next entrepreneurial business? Or do we go down the B2C route? which we were already doing in the UK and we just started in Germany and give both my father and a German employee good income for a year or so. And we concluded that was the best way to go because the margins were a lot higher. Um, And so that then allowed us to build more entrepreneurial projects along the way. Um, So that was my first business the next few were not really unsuc- uh, not really successful to be honest. we tried really hard and we just couldn't get uh, we couldn't get takeoff um, as, as well as we did with with that business. And so in early 2015, I was kind of faced with a dilemma of going sideways in my entrepreneurial career um, and I needed a bit of a kick up the, up the backside. I needed the next step forward. Um, and that next step was uh, going to Babson College. I'm sure a lot of the, of your listeners know Babson College in Massachusetts. Uh, just so out-
0: I actually, I actually did a summer program in ah. high school a very, very long time ago at Babson College, awesome, uh, more man. than more than a decade ago, and met Ben, who is a co is my co founder in the tie at Babson College when we were fifteen. So wow. kind of funny story, re Babson. But were you we on campus? I was on campus,
1: yeah. Yeah, what an amazing campus. Um, yeah, it's such a nice place. So much energy as well.
0: Yeah, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what Babson is, it's it's this small school in Massachusetts that's basically solely focused on entrepreneurship.
1: And it's number one, consistently number one in the world for entrepreneurship. I think, who knows, 25, 26 years in a row. Um, I'm not sure last few years, but yeah, awesome place to go. We lived in Cambridge at the time. So I was, you know, a mile or so from Harvard. Um, went to the Cambridge Innovation Centre every Thursday night. Met so many amazing people, and just really got that energy. Loved that. Visited San Francisco off the back of it. Got even more energy, um, and eventually landed back in the UK. Uh, working, I did some internships in a peer-to-peer provide in um, peer-to-peer. Um, money provider, uh, as well as um, the Royal Bank of Scotland innovation team. And that then led on to um, the, the opportunity for me to to take my next step, big step forward, uh, which was running the European innovation for Fidelity Investments, which is um, the Fidelity Investments, the Fidelity Labs team is an awesome, awesome place to be. Um, At the time, 2016, they were doing a lot of, sorry, 2017, a lot of really cool stuff in the crypto space. Um, As I'm sure you probably know, they were uh, mining Bitcoins. They tested out Bitcoin transactions in the canteen. Um, The Abby Johnson, the CEO, was uh, really passionate about Bitcoin and uh, crypto and, you know, where these markets could go and the, the disruptiveness all the way back then. So great place to be. So I spent a bit of time there. Um, and then I moved on to, to build my own opportunity, which is uh, obviously infinite alpha.
0: Yeah. So, so was that your first experience with crypto? And, and, you know, when did it kind of click? You know, I know you mentioned that, you know, at Fidelity, you were, you were playing around with digital assets and, you know, a couple of different examples you gave there. But when did it click that you wanted to go ahead and start your own crypto
1: company? Yeah, well, my my first experience with crypto was actually when I opened a Mount Gox account in two thousand thirteen. Um, l- luckily for me, I never got around to funding it, so I didn't lose any assets. And well, it
0: could have been it could have been unlucky for you if you funded and then withdrew your 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 funds. But I yeah. think the the lucky the lucky is the right way to look at it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but at least it got me aware of what Bitcoin was at the time. And, you know, through 2014, I didn't really pay too much attention. And then it started picking up. So 2015, I sneaked into a Babson conference where um, I sneaked out of my lecture um, to, to to attend when Gavin Andreessen was talking at the Babson conference. Um, and then I, one of my friends, 2015, was telling me, you need to buy Ethereum, need to buy Ethereum, need to buy Ethereum. Um, and I never did. And then 2016 uh, through May, June time, I bought it, started buying into it at that point. Uh, And that was uh, around about the time when I was at RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, and we were doing quite a large Ethereum project. So that was when I really started getting into into the crypto space. So in in terms of Infinite Alpha, um, I decided to to start that uh, primarily because I wanted to build my own business. I get back and you know I got itchy feet again. Really wanted to get going. Um, I in the 2017 run up, I invested my whole salary into crypto. So at the peak, I thought I was in, in quite a nice position, and uh, no, made one mistake. I never took some off the table for my treasury to build my business. I left it all, and I was drawing it down to build the business, to pay for staff, to pay for marketing and basic tech. But I saw the opportunity to to build a custodial solution after speaking to lots of people um, who I know, both in financial markets and in crypto markets, and bringing together my my experiences of finance and entrepreneurship and where the next opportunities may lie. so So that's why we made the decision to to build or to start Infinite Alpha.
0: And so what were the the most exciting aspects of being a crypto entrepreneur? Uh, And and what were some of the biggest challenges that you guys faced?
1: Absolutely. So without doubt, the most exciting thing was the energy being in in the energy in the space. Um, You know, looking at the global nature of the business, I'd get into the office, we'd run so fast. We're looking at, you know, how to move this thing forward, looking at strategy every day, and lots of little bits about pulling together the tech and what um, everything else looked like, the global nature of the whole business, speaking to friends on WhatsApp in Hong Kong in the mornings and Singapore as well, um, in the evenings, San Francisco, New York, uh, looking at you know, trying to keep up to date with the speed of what was happening, the speed of innovation in the crypto markets, the price movements, the new products that were literally arriving by the day and you know, how you can grab the attention of everyone to, to really get your project out there and open. Um, And then on the other side of that, the big challenge I think was finding good people to work with us. I had awesome networks, both in financial markets and in entrepreneurial uh, circles, but I really struggled in 2017. I genuinely didn't have that many um, tech contacts. So I really struggled with um, finding um, solid enough uh, tech people to be able to build the solution uh, us forward. So there was that, and then there was the, the the challenge of raising VC money in 2018. Um, and I think to be honest, we were three four months too late, uh, which was you know as unfortunate as uh, you know you get the right opportunity. The right people, but uh, unfortunately, or some of the right people, but unfortunately, wrong timing. And so you've got to get that Venn diagram lined up to be able to move it forward. Uh, we had a lot of meetings with VCs, a lot of very good VCs, a lot of very bad VCs. Uh, we educated them all, spent a lot of time doing that, proving that we were moving the project forward. We got a term sheet in the end, I uh, really didn't like it. Um, but long story short, yeah, that kind of that path um, drifted away as the as the Bitcoin price moved towards the $3,000 and uh, stayed down that way for quite a while.
0: And so you mentioned you were about three months too late. So kind of, you know, what? how did the institutional custody landscape evolve, you know, from right before you started to, you know, when you entered the space to to today? And you know what do you th- where do you think the biggest opportunities and challenges are you know within the institutional custody landscape uh, you know today and you know do you think there's a company best position to address those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think in terms of being three months too late, that's purely for the cash side because everyone gets scared at that point when Bitcoin crashed, right, market right. Crashed, uh, but in terms of you know where the the opportunities for custody, I think there's you know today. The, the ten or fifteen good quality players are the ones who developed themselves through the end of two thousand seventeen and were able to survive through two thousand eighteen and are able to you know really scale now um, so for for them you know they're they're the real lucky guys the the guys who really got the tech and were able to get that foundation layer in place and you're you're seeing now I think there's really a supply-demand issue with amongst the, the good custodial solutions because, um, especially with the, the regulation that got passed a couple of months ago um, in the US allowing all banks to be able to act as custodial solutions, there's now an opportunity for these banks to go out and, and act as a custodial, crypto custodial solution, but they don't really know how to. And so therefore, there's going to be a lot of um, partnering with some good quality custodians and also some acquisitions so I think there's strategic exit points or strategic partnerships for these top quality custodians. Um, and I think for good quality um, custody, there's still not probably enough of it in the markets. Uh, you do look at the likes of Fidelity there quite clearly, the leader Um, It's not that their tech may be any better than anyone else's, but it's that whole for the centralized systems for the financial markets, Fidelity really are that trusted name. They've got the huge balance sheet that won't, if they did get the kind of the tiny probability of getting hacked, they do have the balance sheet to cover it. Um, and they've also got a really you know a proven history, really long track history in the traditional markets. I think they're very for- fortunate with the size of their their um, institutional uh, funnel of clients they're able to you know offer offer them it's a very very nice setup for them. so yeah in terms of uh, challenges in that space though the I think the largest challenge for the custodians is the fact that, their products are becoming very commoditized. So that means that the margins are getting squeezed by the day and they have been squeezed significantly um, even just over the last year. So if you fast forward another year or another couple of years, the, the margins are going to be really, really tight. So that means that these custodians must have billions of dollars under custody to be able to make enough profit, to be able to, you know, survive properly and you know yeah i mean it seems like a
0: lot of them have moved down this prime brokerage route right you kind of see this you know moving from just custody to you know custody and trading and cap intros and lending and you know all these different prime services i mean is that kind of where you saw the market going a few years ago and do you think that's the right direction for these companies
1: a few years ago i wouldn't have said it was the right or i didn't recognize that. It is absolutely now because it is. How do you? You've now got your basic infrastructure. You know how to custody basic bitcoins, Ethereum, whatever. It's proven you're secure enough. So now the next stage is as these um, as these margins get squeezed. How do you make new revenues? How do you monetize that client in a different way? And so the prime brokerage is the natural step. And if you look at the traditional financial markets. That was the natural step 20, 20, 25 years ago for the big investment banks. So, that is absolutely where we're coming to now. And, you know, it's it's obvious, you know, it makes sense why Coinbase acquired Tagomi. Um, I'm sure there'll be other kind of opportunities like that out there in the next year or two. And there's, yeah, certainly the the prime brokerage model will become more popular over the next year, uh, both for. For traditional players and for for the smaller, more nimble crypto players.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the things that I always wonder is how are these prime brokerages going to come about? Like originally, you know, we heard news that BitGo is raising a tremendous amount of money to build, you know, their own prime brokerage. Now, you know, there's news that PayPal is maybe trying to acquire them to offer some sort of prime brokerage services. Like, do, do you think that some of the bigger custodians are going to try to build these solutions themselves? Do you think other companies, you know, other exchanges like Coinbase are going to try to acquire them. I mean, do you, like, like where do you, where do you think, you know, who do you think is going to be leading this wave of M or, or do you think most of it is just going to be companies building on their own?
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting if you look at the traditional space. Uh, historically, larger financial services companies do not build products very well, so it's always buy over build. So, what opportunities are out there that might, that might be half a billion dollars? Billion dollar opportunity. A lot of these larger financial services companies can easily swallow that for the right opportunity. So, if there are good quality prime brokerage out there, they'll just acquire them. Um, but there's probably not enough in the market. So, there's certainly an opportunity for some uh, good quality teams to come together or keep innovating to be able to create these more prime brokerage um, opportunities. Um, and yeah, with a reasonable probability uh, that they will become, you know, a strategic acquisition at some point in the next 24 months.
0: And so moving on from from custody, you you joined a uh, Swiss Co- Swiss quote bank about 10 months ago to lead their digital asset efforts. Can you give us a bit of background on the company and and more broadly what what they've done kind of pre-crypto?
1: Absolutely, yes. So for most of you probably don't know Swissquote Bank. So we're a 20-year-old, fully regulated Swiss bank. Um, during those 20 years, we've accumulated over 3 million products on the platform. So that's everything between um, equities, uh, fixed income derivatives. We've got a big FX business um, and obviously we've got a crypto business as well. We're primarily focused on trading and custody services.
0: And so how has, you know, how did SwissQuote uh, originally get involved with crypto? Because I think they got involved uh, back in 2017. And, you know, what initially attracted the firm uh, to the space? And, and, you know, what are are they doing today? And, you know, how do you see that position evolving over time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we were certainly the pioneer in Switzerland, um, especially given that we're a regulated bank and quite possibly the pioneer across Europe. Um, but the, the vision came before two thousand seventeen. The vision came because Paolo and Mark, the two founders of Swissquote, are engin- have an engineering background. They came from EPFL, which is the MIT equivalent in Switzerland, um, and so they recognised blockchain use in financial services at a very early stage, and they thought that could be you know be a game changer longer longer term. And then you forward that thinking and you start going, well, blockchain and financial services, okay, but what about this crypto thing? How can we use that? Actually, that can become a new product category on our platform for our clients, both retail and institutional, to create uh, to trade. And that's how crypto was formed um, on Swiss quote platform. Um yeah, so we've we started in mid two thousand seventeen, just before the bubble. Um, volumes have built and built all the way through over the last sort of three and a half four years, and we're you know now positioning ourselves very very nicely for for the future on both retail and institutional side.
0: And so, what are your day to day responsibilities at Swissquote?
1: Yeah, so the, the role was primarily designed around me coming in and operating in a, in a business development function, focusing on the, the institutional crypto offering. However, it's really evolved um, over the time since I've, I've been there and it's essentially everything non-technical. Um, so I, I love that I've got this opportunity because I get to liaise with literally everyone within C-suite on a daily basis. Um, I'm talking to legal, risk, compliance um, every single day, I'm trying to understand what's happening um, with us, how we can make things better. What's happening with technology companies outside of uh, outside of Swiss Quote who can add who can add to our proposition? Um, I'm thinking about the retail strategy. I'm looking at eighty twenty opportunities around the retail offering as well, um, and I'm advising about bigger picture thinking. And on top of all of that, I'm doing institutional business development. Um, So I I think I'm really lucky that I get such a diverse, such a broad um, day-to-day role. And I mean, the most amazing thing is being able to talk to people, get up in the morning, talk to people in Asia, um, find out what's going on with them, whether it's their business for an opportunity, in any way, partnership in some some kind of way, or if they want to use our facilities or um, our offering in some, to, to trade or to store their their coins, um, and then later in the in the day, talking to people in East and West Coast, you know, it's such a varied, interesting day, and most of the people I'm speaking to are super interesting and yeah, and intelligent and fun and energetic. So yeah, it's is a great day to day life. With you know, I'm very fortunate to have this position of Swiss quote.
0: And so is Swiss quotes business and crypto now more retail or institutional? And and how how has it evolved? And how do you see that evolving in the future?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think it, it started certainly as retail um, or with retail mindset, and it's probably 85% retail still. Um, that said, over the over the course of time, we've had more and more um, external asset managers and hedge funds and and the like uh, trading within our ecosystem. And we've we've you know, we've got Wisdom Tree. We've we've got their um, we've got their bitcoins in our custody. Uh, so we've got more institutions starting to use us because they need a a trusted Swiss or Swiss-regulated um, bank to, to custody their um, keys for the their Bitcoins, for example. Um, so we've got more companies coming to us for things like that. And it's starting to evolve on in the institutional side. So with that in mind, uh, when I came in, really pushed hard to get the, the APIs into place. So they're now coming into place where we've got fixed and WebSocket APIs coming online in the next few weeks. Um, the the custody solutions are looking strong. Uh, we are actively looking at what the future or where the future is in the crypto space. Looking at bringing on new coins, we've got twelve coins currently. We're looking at expanding that offering. Um, also, you know what's what's going on in the storage space. How can we make our offering better, more applicable for institutions for twelve months out? Um, what are the staking opportunities for both the retail and institutional clients what about the futures and options you know, can we start offering that um, and I think the reality is that you will probably see all of that stuff uh, coming live within the next six months with you know wh- where we're going where our mindsets at where the the thinking is within leadership uh, you know everyone you know, most people within the bank have had, four years of understanding of crypto. So although we are still you know a, a traditional largely traditional Swiss bank, we have the skill set in literally every single department, deep skill set and knowledge um, to be able to overcome these aspects, these challenges between the crypto and the traditional worlds and how we get them to work and evolve and move in tandem to solve those problems so that we can onboard and we can service these traditional clients. Um so, yeah, it's super exciting and super positive what Swiss core are actually doing in this space.
0: And so, what do you think of all the developments that we've seen in crypto uh, since the beginning of this year and and more specifically since the pandemic began? and And by that, I mean, you know bitcoin, you know, you know dropping all the way down to thirty you know to to thirty seven hundred. and then you know the having and Bitcoin ran up close to ten k and now seeing all these. You know this, this new enterprise adoption and treasuries and and uh, you know even you know you know guys like you know Druckenmiller coming in and and saying that they're holding Bitcoin. I mean I mean broadly speaking, you know you know kind of what's your perspective on this year?
1: Absolutely, a lot of things you just mentioned are the the main drivers. When looking back at March, uh, I guess it was quite scary for global markets, and the liquidity obviously uh, took its toll in the crypto and Bitcoin. You know, falling as you say down to that three thousand seven hundred level. Um, I think it's really great that the the market never fell apart, and it's uh, even better that we recovered so so quickly. Um, I appreciate there was a lot of uh, believers who were able to to get, you know, really take advantage of that and, you know, fair play to them uh, to, to do so. Um, so that was super positive. And if we look at the last few months and just take a step back and analyze it, and as you said, you know, Miller talking about dollar weakness and, you know, he really likes gold and, B- and Bitcoin, but actually Bitcoin will probably outperform gold. You look at Paul Tudor Jones again on CNBC, um last week talking about the positive ecosystem and how he's even more positive about bitcoin now um mohammed el-arian the the ex pimco chief and um global you know global advisor to alliance um tweeted about you know the Pay attention to the Bitcoin price last week. Uh, So you've got these people talking about the space. And these are some of the most respected people in the traditional financial markets. And then, as you say about PayPal, you sit on top of that, that they're going to enable up to 200 million US users by the end of 2020. We're only at 100 million users in the crypto ecosystem just now so we're going to i
0: wouldn't even say we're at 100 million we're maybe at 100 million all time i mean we're not actively anywhere near that number
1: sure well i mean if we if we say you know anything 80 million 70 million um and then if we assume that even half the paypal um people or a third of the paypal users actually want to go and start trading we're doubling tripling our ecosystem so i think it's huge um, huge, huge upside to the to the you know to allow people to start experimenting um, through the likes of PayPal, and then you take that step forward and you go. JP Morgan report a few weeks ago said two to three x upside in Bitcoin um, coming forward. You've got CME futures seeing a sharp rise in interest on a monthly basis. You've got Bitwise AUM now over a hundred million. Um, you've got Fidelity requiring 20 new engineers in their crypto space. Um, you've got endowment funds, um, now up to about a billion dollars of investments in the crypto space. Last week, you saw DBS, the, the largest um, bank in Southeast Asia, coming online and admitting that they're building a tri- trading and custody platform. Um, you've got Grayscale with their last quarter inward investments of over a billion dollars, now up to about five and a half billion dollars in their in their funds, so the whole space, the foundation level really is there, and the, I think the key point with it is that actually there's no FOMO, people. It's not in the front page of the normal newspapers or the the press. Um, it's not get. It's you've not got. Your hairdresser, your taxi driver, Uber driver, um, your pizza maker, anyone else outside of this ecosystem talking about it or asking you for advice again? So we've we're still at the relatively early stages of building that base layer of of what could well be a very strong uh, bill market in the next x months ahead.
0: Yeah, and 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 I totally agree with you. I mean, you know one of the things that we do is, you know, sentiment analysis on Twitter. And if we look at the number of people talking about Bitcoin on Twitter, Mm -hmm. we are not even at, you know, 40% of the levels we're at in 2017. So we really haven't seen any sort of significant bump, you know, year to date or over the last couple of years. And in fact, you know, volumes are are, are down in terms of social conversation. So it just shows you, I mean, look where we went in 2017 with just retail. And I think, you know, retail gets excited by, you know, you know volatility and by and by price movement and, and by numbers and by headlines, right? And the second that Bitcoin hits twenty thousand one dollars, right? You know that's going to be uh, that's going to be a big headline. Exactly. Uh, and I, I think the fact that, that that institutional base has has come, um, you know that that they're they're just such better solutions now, where a you know a family office can can comfortably allocate to Bitcoin. They can just open an account on Fidelity, right? And they can trade and they can custody their assets, right? I think all of that is, is certainly positive. One thing which you did mention though, and I'd love to get your take on this, is, is grayscale and inflows into grayscale. So certainly, you know, a, a percentage of those inflows into grayscale are, you know, users that just want to allocate to Bitcoin and think Grayscale is a great vehicle. But a lot of the reason that that you know accredited investors and you know other forms of institutions you know, in my view, and also just from talking to them or allocating to, to Grayscale is because, you know, Grayscale, you know, GBTC, which is Grayscale's Bitcoin trust is trading at a 17% premium to, to NAV. And, you know, you can just go borrow Bitcoin at, you know, 9%, 10% a year. And you can just make the spread between the premium to NAV that, uh, you know, G- GBTC is trading at and the actual borrow rate of Bitcoin. I mean, do you think that most of the the inflows into GBTC have been because of this, you know, pure interest in Bitcoin? Or do you think it's also just, you know, people that are trying to play this, you know, market inefficiency?
1: Yeah, I, I think if you've hit nail on the head with regards to the market efficiency or inefficiency, The I don't have numbers in front of me, but I think the GBTC was a, trading a premium of about 70% at one point.
0: It um, was. And I, I still remember in 2016, early 2017, it was trading at a discount. To NAV at one point. I was able to buy it at a discount at one point, which was one of the the the, uh, the pickups my career. And, and also that was when uh, Chris Berniski and Arc actually originally purchased GBTC was when it was trading at a discount to NAV as well.
1: Ah, interesting. So I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense for the for a lot of the crypto funds to be participating in this space at the moment. And I think you've got to there's Two types of participants, there's those guys. So the
0: all-time high was, I just looked it up, 133 yeah. in May 2017. It traded at 133% premium. Wow,
1: wow. would have been nice, <laughs> would have been nice to get get onto that arbit- uh, opportunity. But um, Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of the crypto funds have been jumping into that. Um, I think there's probably also, who knows if it's 20% or 40%, is proper institutional money, um, of which I would say is... Ninety something percent U.S. Um, I don't really see the the European um, institutional money really flowing across across the pond into those uh, U.S. type funds just now. Um, I would love it if there was a a bit bit more interest in Europe, but I think uh, we're 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 more of a, a sleeping. Well, I don't want to even say a sleeping giant. We're 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 more of a risk averse. Um, G- geographical region than um, US and um, Asia.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, I think we have seen though CoinShares has has attracted I think over a billion AUM now, and, and I think they're based out in London. So okay. you know we've seen we've seen a bit there, and there's actually now uh, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with Three IQ, which is uh, there it's it's actually an ETF traded on the TSX, uh, and and that I think is going to attract a tremendous amount of investment. Unlike GBTC, it has a four rather than a six-month lockup period um, for accredited investors, and it's trading at a twenty-five percent premium to NAV. So effectively, you're, the premium you're getting if you're rolling your your funds over three times a year is ninety-five percent. Uh, and so they launched a few months ago, and and they've attracted about one hundred and twenty million dollars in, in three or four months. Um, and I think we'll see that 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 scale tremendously as well.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean that that absolutely
0: makes sense. And 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 something else that you mentioned to me was was you know AMC's. So can you explain to the audience what actively managed uh, certificates are and and what you know if any any impact they they may have on the cryptocurrency space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So AMC's actively managed certificates, as you say, the easiest way to think of them is like um, on balance sheets versions of ETFs. Now, ETFs off balance sheet. Um, the on balance sheet means you've got exposure, credit exposure, credit risk to the actual um, issuer. Um, so, I mean, Swissquote have got um, AMCs, quite a number of other European providers have got AMCs, um, and these are is, is interesting because these are um, sort of if you look at the Bitcoin one, for example, um, our Swissquote one, we our two year one recently expired, it outperformed um Bitcoin on the performance, but it uh, had a lower risk uh, attributed to it so it was a really interesting um, certificate so, to so, in.
0: so how did how did how was that able to be accomplished the, the lower risk in, in better returns
1: Sure um through having quite a good structured products desk, Basically, and uh, managing it on a, I don't actually have the, the term sheet in front of me, but um, there's there's rebalancing um, as per the term sheet, whether that's a daily or weekly or monthly rebalancing, depending on what uh, parameters, um, but they did model it in such a way that they, they were able to get that out performance. And so, so, you get quite a few of the the AMCs like that. We've also got multi-currency AMCs which have maybe five or six of the cryptos. Uh, we've also got one with the, the full crypto range um, of our in our portfolio. And so, I mean, there's two types of people who would invest in these. There are the the smaller institutions, and then there's the retail. You now, if you take the retail person, why would they in, invest in it? Well if they don't understand Bitcoin that much, but they want a bit of Bitcoin exposure, they don't have to worry about buying the Bitcoin. They don't have to worry about the custody, um, any risks associated with that. They're buying a pretty straightforward fund, effectively, Um, the pain management fees in that fund. But you can eliminate part of those management fees against the custody, the opportunity, the cost of custody. Um, So it's a far easier trade for them and um, likewise with institutions, I think for some of the smaller institutions, um, but um, the other side of that is that you are seeing that the physical Bitcoin and the the futures, in fact, are a lot easier to get into these days. So, you now really, as an institution, have three good opportunities to get into the market. Um, you should, or most of them should be comfortable buying the physical Bitcoin now. They should certainly understand enough of it. The infrastructure is certainly there. Um, if they still don't understand or still don't feel comfortable with those risks, then they can look at the CME futures. Um, certainly no excuse about you know not investing in the CME futures, given that they trade these regularly as institutions um, for other products. For their other products in house, and they their middle and back offices all know how to to settle these and deal with any um, transfers of assets. So there's that opportunity, and then obviously there's the the AMC's opportunity, um, and then who knows? Maybe very soon we'll see ETFs as well.
0: And so you know, w- one thing that 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 really interests me, and, and that we've we've spoken about before, is is, is interest bearing products. And for me, that you know the the you know a lot of the time, you know, back in the day, you know, investors were investing in you know these these multi-asset crypto hedge funds, and a lot of them, especially in the depths of the bear market, were being out outperformed by by Bitcoin. And so, you know, my perspective was always, hey, why would you want to allocate to to some of these, especially in, in in a you know in in certain market conditions when you can actively just invest in Bitcoin and, and potentially in, increase, you know. Uh, you know, you're returned with with some sort of interest-bearing product. So, is that something that you've seen interest uh, from 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 institutional investors? And do you think they'll be more attracted to to CFI or DeFi products?
1: Yeah. So, in in terms of interest bearing, I think um, it's one of the spaces that will absolutely expand over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Um, one type of strategy actually there's um san francisco guys with financial have got quite an interesting strategy around yeah, they have some the, interesting
0: structured products
1: yeah in terms of the have you seen their their covered calls on the bitcoin um i think that's quite a, quite a good strategy um i either selling uh sort of uh 20 delta um call call options on the bitcoin um taking about one and a half percent premium out of that it then means and they're Purchasing bitcoins, um, so it then means they're getting the upside up to that call option strike um, in the actual bitcoin performance, and then they collect the the um, the premium on the the call options above that. If bitcoin obviously goes way beyond, then they're not getting the benefit of that um, the higher price, but they're certainly locking in you know a twenty maybe twenty five percent return, which you know that can be quite good. I think if you if you think Bitcoin's going up a little bit or it's staying around these levels, then that's a good strategy to get into. If you think Bitcoin's going to the moon, uh, you shouldn't be selling the call options. Uh, but you know products like that are certainly tailored to more, more towards institutions and you know, taking 20, 25, 30 percent out is, is, is a nicer sort of risk reward strategy
0: the (laughs) only the only asset class that anybody would ever complain about 25 percent returns in is crypto (laughs)
1: yeah exactly (laughs) but i I think also the challenges around you know where do you trade your options there's not many choices they've got cme you've perhaps got backed um has grown
0: about a thousand percent year over year in terms of volumes i mean it's it's quietly been somewhat impressive i mean to see you know their launch was was you know, by all, by all means a flop, but it Mm -hmm. seems like they've, they've, I mean, you know, we've seen like $130 million days from back more recently.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, these are really only the two options for just now. I mean, you'll see companies like Kraken will probably be in it in the next six months or so. Um, but really as, as an institutional, you can't go near, the likes of Deribit because of the, the risk aspects of its, where it's located and who knows where it will be. I would hope that they will be solid enough to be around in two or three years, but they may well just pack up shop one day. So you don't want to really have exposure um, around companies like that or you know some of the, the larger Asian exchanges. So it does make it quite difficult as to you know where do you go and how deep is the liquidity and hence how big can you scale your product on the basis of that liquidity. So that's, it's a bit of a challenge at the moment.
0: And so one of the questions that we ask all of our guests is, you know, how do you define fundamentals for cryptocurrency, you know, and how do you think about crypto valuation and and does it depend on the token? I'll kind of let you take that down, you know, two rabbit holes, the first being Bitcoin and the second being kind of everything else.
1: Yeah, cool, tough, tough question. if we look at fundamentals, they're quite clearly different to the fundamentals that exist in tradi- with traditional assets in terms of um, gov- government policies that drive uh, supply chains that, um, and um, central banks making decisions on interest rates that drive quantitative easing and um, do- weaker or stronger currencies off the back of it um okay fine you know dollar weakness can obviously affect the the crypto as well but um largely you know the 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 fundamentals i think you've got to try and look at more what what's the team doing what does the team have um what's the technology what is the ecosystem surrounding that particular team what is the the more global ecosystem um is the global ecosystem ready for products like teams or, um, you know, currencies are, you know, built, built for just now or is it further down the line? Um, what are similar products? What is the valuation? Is there an opportunity to, you know, buy one, sell the other one um, on a sort of relative value basis? Um, so thinking around, you know, that that sort of thing, um, if it's a product, looking at scaling and exit probabilities, um or even, you know, if it's one of the protocols, um, yeah, you can you can view it in a similar way. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not an easy, yeah, it's, I don't, don't think it's an easy question to answer. But uh, supply and demand, I think, have got a, a play a huge important role um, in this as well. Um, as we're seeing, obviously, the supply in bitcoins is um, limited. Supply in other currencies is slightly different. Depends on what what um, token or um, currency you're looking at. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly for Bitcoin, supply and demand um, plays a large part as well. And 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 how do you
0: think about you know day to day fluctuations? I mean, you know what what do you think drives a lot of the the volatility and and movement within crypto on a daily basis?
1: Yeah, I think the. Well I would say a, a big observation when you get up to strategic resi- resistance levels and especially in Bitcoin um, you'll quite often see a lot of pop, uh, put options being bought and uh, maybe one two thousand um, dollars lower than that and then you'll see a violent sell-off and it seems to be that that's the the whales and the miners um, some of them colluding to be able to um, you know buy buy Bitcoin, uh, buy put options, sell the future aggressively, uh, knowing that they'll buy back the, or sorry, sell the underlying aggressively, knowing that they're going to drive down the, the price. They'll buy the Bitcoins back at a later stage or a lower level. Um, meanwhile, their put options have increased in value. They can sell them out. They're getting double whammy. Um, I think that's one of the things that really drives the sharper moves um, in the market. And then, you know, around your 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 Twitter What's coming out on Twitter um, by certain people and the, you know, the PayPal story and things like that is causing just a little bit more um, buying into, in, into the markets, which is obviously what's driving us up.
0: Yeah, and I think that's I think both interesting points. I mean to, to your first point, you know I always wonder, you know how much power miners do really have on this space? And I think the answer is when price is higher. Just a lot more than they do when prices lower I think is the simple answer and yeah. but but you know just you know the idea that if you're a miner you got an electricity bill to pay every month right yeah. and if you're you're mining you know Bitcoin at you know right now we're at sixteen thousand you know one hundred dollars almost right that's a lot different than mining Bitcoin at eight grand when you have an electricity bill to pay right if if, if your yeah. margins are, are much better and uh, yeah I mean and that's a theory that I've heard from some funds as well I mean I don't think you're alone in that in that belief. Um, you know, that, that, that there, there is potentially some collusion. I, I wonder what will happen, though, as we see more, more hash power move over to North America, uh, you know, become more distributed. And then also just, you know, as, as more institutions come into the space and start buying up more and more of the supply, I, I wonder if that is going to make the, you know, exacerbate the problem. Um or, or or kind of improve it because on one hand you know you look at micro strategy buying a ton of Bitcoin well that's great for Bitcoin's price but that's also less supply that's on the market um, yeah and so I, I wonder what kind of impact it's going to have
1: yeah absolutely and and you're right to point out the hash power moving from China over to the US and Canada um there's you know there's good opportunities for. People who have cheap electricity, whether it's like a renewables plant, to be able to create a a crypto, a a Bitcoin mining opportunity on the side of that. Uh, We're certainly seeing some uh, interest. I've been talking to a few guys in that space recently. But I think um, as you're seeing that transition and less Chinese influence, because let's face it, the the Chinese uh, miners um, probably are able to mine over 50% of the Bitcoins. So they do control that part of the market um, and they do collude because, hey, it's, it's, yeah, it's just something they do. It's, they've done it for forever and it's, it's a normal thing that they'll do. Um, but as we see more people, as you say, like MicroStrategy holding Bitcoins in custody in the US, as you see more miners in the US who are structured and set up more as a professional business, um, you're going to see less colluding you're going to see less um, kind of opportunistic selling opportunistic trading um sometimes irrational trading um, you're going to see far more far more strategic and um, lower risk play we sell assets because we need to pay for x y and Z are we going to keep um you know 20 30 percent of our bitcoins to further a higher level or you know we're not going to see them all slamming the market and trying to you know for play games essentially so yeah I, th- I think it's a really good thing for the market going forward and you know that volatility will certainly be reduced um, as more and more institutional players come as the hash power moves more to to the west as well so yeah it's only a good thing
0: yeah and, and I agree with you and I, I think also just you know Look, I'm not the biggest believer that the halving has the largest impact in, in the market. You know, it's, you know, a reduction in the supply of, you know, whatever, $10 million worth of Bitcoin a day that can't be sold. Um, but but it, but it does pose an interesting question that if the miners do, in fact, have a lot of power, any any supply reductions will, will significantly decrease the power that they have. Uh, you know, issuance reductions, right? If the inflation rate of Bitcoin is dropping, you know, their power inevitably is going to be dropping even further. But Another question that I had, and this kind of ties together a lot of what we've said and what you've done is, you know, you you came from from a background of, you know, know, started a a custody company in crypto, right? And we talked a lot, and and you mentioned, you know, supply and demand being a driver for Bitcoin. So one thing that I've always wondered is, how do you think about Bitcoin as an inflationary asset? Because to me, I actually view it as potentially deflationary, not inflationary. And the reason that I bring that up is, you know so many people have lost their Bitcoin private keys, right? So many people don't know how to access their Bitcoin anymore. And, and you know, there are estimates out there that, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of two to five plus million, you know, of the 21 million Bitcoin are gone forever. I mean, from your experience in custody, do you think that that's true? Do you think people will continue to to lose their private keys? And do you think Bitcoin could actually become deflationary?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the, <laughs> it's, the, the challenge is at the moment that you've, you've come through this cycle of early adopters. And we're st- I think we're still at the tail end of the er- early adopters um, space in crypto. DeFi is a different uh, story. It's still still a lot earlier. Um, but on the, on the Bitcoin side, um, yeah, absolutely, you're right. It could be up to 5 million. So if we assume maybe 3 or 4 million of the 21 million are lost, um, that's absolutely an inflationary um, aspect um, on the price of the the Bitcoin, naturally it is. Um, and yeah, I, I think the I I I I felt a couple of years ago or three three years ago actually at the peak, I had my ledger Nano S and I had, you know, quite a lot of Bitcoin and Ethereum on it. And you know, it, it gave to me a a warning, update your software. And I panicked. I really, really panicked at the time. I thought, bloody hell! I've got X, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum on this, and actually, I have to do a software update. What happens if? Um, and you know, at that time, I thought I'd lost it. Luckily, you know, that was just a uh, well, <laughs> Chris not being very technical and uh, luck- luckily getting through it and uh, you know surviving it. But obviously, some people haven't been, and some people do lose their private keys. But that's why, <laughs> frankly, you know, it's it's easier. Going for the the CFI option at the moment, um, knowing that hey, you know at least I at least I know that my bitcoins on Swissquote are safe, um, or my bitcoins with Fidelity are safe, um, because who knows what happens with your private your um, your Ledger Nano S or your Trezor wallet? What happens if the the software upgrade doesn't work next time, or the 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 wallet just breaks for some reason? Um, yeah, there's a lot of risk. Or if
0: somebody passes away and your, you know, yeah. your wife or your kids or your friends don't know how to access your Bitcoin. Uh, and we've certainly seen that issue before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also remember at the peak giving my, um, my private key access to one of my wallets, uh, splitting up between one, one of my best friends and my mum, and saying, here's part A from my mum. here's part B from my friend, here's the phone numbers, blah, blah, blah. keep it safe. And I really emphasized keep it safe because at the time I had a hell of a lot of Bitcoin on it. Um, but do you know what? If I went back to them just now, I bet my best friend has um, got still got that bit of paper or um, he's got images of it on his phone somewhere. I bet my mum doesn't have a clue where it is. Um, <laughs> so, you know,
0: is. <laughs> I've always thought it would be an interesting business. I think some people have done this like a legacy plan. Like what yeah. happens, like a company that's just set up to help your loved ones access your Bitcoin after you die. I think there's a company that does that. Um, I, I can't imagine it's a real business yet, but I do think it will be a business.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly an opportunity. It's like kind of, um, it's, again, it's another sort of custodial type thing, park, park your assets with a, um, a lawyer or something.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like a, it's like a, a, a morgue that also, you know, does Bitcoin custody or something.
1: Yeah. On well, of the, the risk is there and we've got to be aware of it and we've got to to make sure that we can survive it properly as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: when I when I talk just quickly and then, you know, we've got a couple more questions or we'll wrap up. But, you know, I, you know I've, I've been talking to a lot of family office in this space and they're, you know, they're talking about, you know, how do I get involved with Bitcoin, this and that? I'm like, if you're just trying to get involved with the space, just call call Fidelity. You already have an account with them or, you know, or, or somebody like Swissquote, right? You know, somebody you have an existing relationship with, right? That will custody your assets. Don't deal with it yourself. I understand yeah. that everybody in crypto is, you know, you know, the libertarian early adopters are very much not your keys, not your coins. But if you're an institution, it's just easier to have somebody you trust custodying your assets and you're regulated anyways, right? So yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I, I remember actually talking to a fund for two and a half y- years ago um, based in Cyprus and they had quite a substantial amount of um, crypto at the time. Um, and they had a whole series of ledger nano S's literally just in the office of, you know, who knows? I don't know how much money, <laughs> aye, aye, aye. millions and millions of Bitcoin, uh, so millions of dollars of Bitcoin just stored on nano S's. Um, You know, that's where the world was and that's, you know, as you say, just go and park it on Fidelity or Swiss quote or whoever, Coinbase, whoever that you genuinely trust and you think can manage your keys um, for a reasonable amount of money. Just take that stress away for just now. If you're a, you know, as you say, family office, hedge fund, centralized business, you need to make sure that you de-risk yourself in that avenue. Um, and don't take chances in that operational process.
0: And so what has you most uh, excited about crypto and what worries you most about the space?
1: Yeah, what worries me most? Um, <laughs> n- not having enough Bitcoins. <laughs> I
0: you know, st- Welcome st- to st- the club. Sorry? I said, "Welcome to the
1: club." Uh, yeah. I'm the president. <laughs> so have, having starting, having had, had to start off again from zero um, a year or so ago, it's been quite a painful journey. But you know, I I you know accumulate is the game. Um, in terms of you know what what actually does worry me, um, I think you've got to look at the, the risks of you know what happened in the regulatory space that might slow us down in Europe and uh, in the West. Um, relative to Asia, um, and if you you know build on that thing, I think um, you know what's happening around the U.S. presidential election. What's happening with the Senate, and, um, and something that one of my friends in the U.S. was talking to me about the other day was around the Senate perhaps expanding because I don't fully I've not fully dug into it, but at the moment I believe there's the Republicans have one more seat than the Democrats, so they've got slight majority, slight control. Um, however, the strategy of the Democrats to further in, in a year or so down the line might well be to expand the Senate to allow themselves to effectively buy five or six more seats and then have the majority. And so what is that going to play out with the you know the innovation scene, the Bitcoin scene? Um, that could well, End up stifling innovation and slowing down how Silicon Valley operates, how how the West uh, East Coast operates, um, and that could have a knock on effect on Europe, um, and that could be really detrimental to the US um, or significantly detri- detrimental, and that could therefore then mean that Asia can get even more of an upper hand um, in this game in the the development of the the crypto space and the development of fintech and innovation in general. Um, and that wouldn't be good for Europe nor America. Um, I think it would be good that we can, so it's great that Asia can innovate and innovate very fast with limited regulations. But I don't think we should be stopped from or prevented from um, trying to keep up with them. Um, so regulations and then the potential anything that Democrats might might do to to slow down innovation um, could really be a risk to us going forward.
0: And so my final question is: If you could join any public public company as a cryptocurrency advisor, who would you want to join and why?
1: Yeah, fantastic question. Um, I'm trying to trying to work out about you know what might be an interesting public company for for me to be advising and especially more so on the crypto side and you know how I can add significant value to them to make it, you know, worthwhile. Um, in terms of public companies, I don't actually see any public companies that really, really excite me at the moment. What um, about private? Well, absolutely, and what What is happening more and more, we're seeing there's more exciting companies coming up with, you know, food tech, um, nutrition, um, ideas around sleep, your health, your well-being, exercise, um, continuous glucose monitoring, um, how your heart rate works, how your stress um, levels go in work or when you're doing sport, how your recovery is, all of these things. So, I mean, looking at all of these things and there's no company yet exists that encapsulates all of that, but if company did exist that encapsulates all of that, if you bring that together with crypto and my entrepreneurial experiences, and my journey to date um, with the innovation and stuff, that's a kind of perfect uh, perfect storm in the center of a Venn diagram, and that would really excite me. That would really give me the opportunity to keep going in the crypto space, keep innovating, um, keep building for the future. Um, but more importantly, being able to help millions of people in many ways um, and have fun at the same time. Um, so that's super, super important comb- combination.
0: Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Where, where can people find you and Swissquote online?
1: Josh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, Swissquote Bank, um, Swissquote.com is the easiest way to get access to our platform. You can also find them on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, you can find myself on LinkedIn as well. Um, that should be easy enough. Or for anyone who wants to reach out to me direct by email, more than happy to take um, any emails from your clients, uh, sorry, from your listeners, Christopher.Thomas, not Chris Thomas, Christopher.Thomas at Swissquote.com. Been a pleasure talking to you, Josh, and I'm absolutely open to talking to anyone else who wants to reach out.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris, and I'll I'll put everything in the description.
1: Cheers, Josh. Thank you.